Hi, Nat Doig here. This is part two of The Pot and Poisoner. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and have a listen. We'll still be here waiting for you when you're through. Just a heads up that although this episode is about a poisoning that happened 180 years ago, it deals with some distressing topics that are just as relevant today, such as domestic abuse and violence, as well as murder, including the death of an infant. I wanted to let you know so you can decide when and how you listen to this episode. Hello and welcome to Weird in the Wade, a podcast about all that's weird, wonderful and a little off kilter in the town of Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. Each episode, I'll tell you a tale of something strange and unique that has happened in this most English of market towns or its surrounding area. There's an older meaning to the word weird, which means to twist and turn. In Norse myth and in Anglo-Saxon times, this came to mean fate or destiny. All that was and is and all that is yet to be. Whether it's tales of ghosts or flying saucer hoaxes, the big cat of Biggleswade, or the pot and poisoner, curious social history, or the great swan mystery of 1935, we'll follow all the twists and turns and uncover fascinating stories that will speak to you today, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Weird in the Wade. It's late at night on Wednesday the 22nd of March, 1843. If there is one thing that Superintendent Edwin Blunden does not miss about London, it's the biting wind of the River Thames. He's been back in the city for less than 24 hours and yet somehow has ended up on the mudflats at Trig Lane Stairs whilst he waits near Broken Wharf for an informant. His old colleague Woodbridge, hunched against the wind next to him, is attempting to keep his pipe alight and failing. The river is restless, dark but never as dark as the sky above it. Specks of light on the far bank shift in and out of view through a cold mist. Then, shuffling towards them, Edwin makes out a figure with a strange staggering gait shifty looking. As he gets closer, Blunden can see that he wears a battered cocked hat and tattered tailcoat, a fashion of 50 years or more ago. No words are spoken, but the shady figure nods his head and the policemen follow. Although the hour is late, there is always work happening at the docks and wharfs, always someone moving goods or hammering things into place. They make their way up the slope towards Thames Street and then suddenly the dark figure they are following disappears. 
he has dived into the shadow of a doorway even darker than the night around them. Woodbridge nods his head to Blunden and wraps his cane on the door opposite. Open up! Open up! In the name of the law! The door opens a crack and a meagre light slithers its escape. A woman with a warty face glares out at them. What does the law want here with us? We're law-abiding people here. Blunden steps forward. We're here for the apprehension of Mrs Sarah Daisley and one Samuel Stebbings, lately of Wrestlingworth in Bedfordshire, who we believe are lodged here for the night. The woman sighs, lets the door swing open, saying, Well, you'd better come in then. The following morning, Thursday the 23rd of March, the Mansion House courtroom, presided over by the Lord Mayor of London. Edwin Blunden's prisoners, Sarah Daisley and Samuel Stebbings, have not said a word to one another since they arrived. Although they are not quite Blunden's prisoners yet, this is why they're here, to get permission to take them back to Bedfordshire for the inquest into William Daisley's death. Somehow word must have got out because there are more newspaper men than Blunden remembers ever being present in court before. But maybe there are just more newspapers, now he ponders. The Lord Mayor of London, William Magnay, is a newspaper man himself, having been master of the worshipful company of stationers and newspaper makers, though he was concerned with publishing and printing the things, not reporting for them. He's 48 and a year away from being made a baronet. He's following in his father's footsteps, being Lord Mayor of London for the year 1843. When it is Blunden's turn, he steps forward deferentially and clearly outlines his reasons for being there. He has extensive experience of giving evidence at the Old Bailey. This appearance does not faze him at all. He ignores the murmurs in the room when he talks of poisonings, of not one husband, but maybe two, and an infant child. Magne decides, however, to question the young woman in Blunden's custody himself. Blunden smothers a sigh, and he makes way for his prisoner. Sarah Daisley steps up to the bar and stares around the room calmly. All eyes turn to her. She is self-composed. Her glossy auburn hair is visible below her bonnet. Her hazel eyes glow almost cat-like. Her skin is creamy, the complexion of the countryside that city folks of her station dream of. And her mouth, set firm, is full, and even Blunden is struck by how handsome she is. This is why he did not want her to be questioned. Some of the newspaper men have even stopped scribbling to gawk at her. Your name? the mayor inquires, although he knows it. Sarah shows no sign of irritation. Mrs Sarah Daisley, sir. And what of your station in life? You are a widow, yes? What of your husbands? Do they have family? Relations? Do you have family? Yes, my lord mayor. I'm a widow. My husband died some five months since. I have a mother and a brother living in Potton. My father is dead. He was a respectable hairdresser, but he died when I was young and left the family 
in reduced circumstances. And so I trained with my uncle to be a dressmaker and milliner. I was married at about 19. Too young, I fear. And I was married to my first husband, Simeon, for six years. We had one son, Jonah. He was a sickly little mite. And he was taken from me aged just 10 months. When he died, I was already married to my late husband, William Daisley, who was also taken from me, sir, quite cruelly. And what of these accusations from Superintendent Blunden here and his colleague from the Metropolitan Police? What do you say about them? They are extremely serious in nature. Do you grasp that? I do. I'm not an imbecile. And I did not run away as these policemen have insinuated. I left my home in Wrestlingworth because I was abandoned by my fiancé, George Waldock, on account of these scurrilous rumours. They have been put about by a woman named Mary Carver, who was sweet on George Waldock, the man I was betrothed to. Because of her jealous lies, the village have turned their back on me and I needed to find a way to make a living. London seemed as good a place as any to find work. If I had not been abandoned by George Waldock, I would not have left. The mayor interrupts. This, this man here is not George Waldock then? The man whose company you were found in is not your fiancé? Sarah attempts to answer, but the mayor raises his hand and turns to Stebbings instead. Blunden nudges Stebbings forward, encouraging him to speak. No, I am not that man. I am not Waldock. Well, who are you then? Give an account of yourself, man. The mayor insists and suddenly Samuel's whole demeanour closes up, whether in fear or artifice. I'm, um, uh, I, I'm Sam. Sam who? What is your standing in life, man? Um, well, Steppings. Yeah, I'm Steppings. Samuel Steppings. I, I don't know what my standing is, sir. I, I'm not sure what you mean. I only just met this lady. I don't really know her like. We've just been together for a few days. Together? Cohabiting? Cohabiting, sir? We've been living under the same roof, if that's what you mean. Or under the stars one night, sir. The courtroom erupts in laughter and the mayor waves away Stebbings. Blunden grabs him and yanks him out of the Lord Mayor's line of sight. Sarah's face has not twitched once throughout that exchange. She has kept her gaze fixed firmly on the Lord Mayor throughout, like a challenge. So she does not see a messenger arrive at Superintendent Blunden's side and hand him a letter. The Lord Mayor ignores this and carries on with his questioning. Mrs Daisley, you are accused of poisoning your most recent husband and quite possibly a previous one. It appears that the police officers here wish to compel you to attend an inquest into your second husband's death. Do you understand all of this? Police Superintendent Blunden begins to read. Of course I understand, sir. As I have said, I am not an imbecile. The room gasps at her impertinence, but the Lord Mayor, now distracted by Blunden reading a letter in front of him, does not interrupt Sarah's testimony. And I'm glad there is to be an inquest, for I did not poison anyone. I would not dream of poisoning anyone, especially my husband. 
I was never anything but a loving wife to him. I did not run away because of any of this. I am glad they have dug up his body because they will know that I did not poison him. London coughs. <clears throat> Lord Mayor, I have just been brought new evidence pertaining to the results from the tests carried out on the remains of William Daisley. There is a loud gasp and low murmur creeps around the room. Faces are animated, except for Sarah, who did not flinch. She keeps her gaze on the Lord Mayor. Well, tell the court what they say, the Lord Mayor demands. It is confirmed that the body of the deceased, William Daisley, contained arsenic, a great quantity of arsenic, enough to poison him many times over. There is another gasp in the courtroom, followed by mutterings and even a shout of For shame! which the mayor quells with his hammer. What do you say of this now, Mrs Daisley? Sarah's face is still. There is no sign of busy calculation happening in her head, no flicker of anxiety. I'll say that he was poisoned. The medical test says it's true. And I did say as much when he was sick, that it was like he had been poisoned, not like a natural illness. But it was not me who gave him the poison. And I'm happy to go back with these policemen to the inquest, where I will show that it was not me who poisoned him. I was always a loving wife to him. The furious scribbling of the newspaper men does not stop until the Lord Mayor awards a warrant and permission for Blunden to take both Sarah and Samuel back to Bedfordshire to face the coroner. The reporters then rush back to the newspaper offices and some are dispatched up to Biggleswade, told to get there as fast as they can to arrive before the police and prisoners. They will spread the word of Sarah's appearance in front of the Lord Mayor of London and her imminent return to Bedfordshire. Sarah remains defiant for the rest of the day, unfazed by the medical evidence. It is only when she comes face to face with the wrath of her neighbours and the townsfolk of Biggleswade that her composure crumples. When she appears at the inquest the following morning, gone is her insolent manner, replaced by a dread of despair. What we will have to decide in this episode and the next is... Was this the despair of a woman found out for committing the most terrible of crimes? Or was it the despair of a woman who felt she was innocent, but realised that the whole world had already found her guilty? This time on Weird in the Wade, we explore why arsenic poisonings were rampant in the 19th century and consider the evidence given at the inquests into the deaths of Sarah's first husband and baby. Are there possible mitigating circumstances that might explain why a wife in Victorian Britain would turn to murder? Or do the deaths of Simeon Mead and baby Jonah just demonstrate the callousness of the pot and poisoner? Hello, I'm Nat Doig and welcome to part two of The Pot and Poisoner. This has been a story that has just run wild through my mind over the last few months. It's consumed my thoughts like no other story has. Back in April, when I visited Trig Stairs on the mudflats of the Thames at Broken Wharf and recorded the waves and footsteps in the gravel that you just heard at the start of the show, 
I never thought it would end up being a three-part episode, nor that I'd be contacted by two separate people who know different ghost stories associated with this case. The second ghost story will feature in part three. Today's episode deals with the run-up to the inquests into the deaths of William Daisley and Simeon and baby Jonah Mead, though we're going to leapfrog over William's inquest and come back to that for part three. It will make sense, I promise you. In part two, we'll focus on the events of 1840, which lead to the deaths of father and son, Simeon and Jonah. There's no ghost story this time, I'm sorry, but there is some fascinating history about arsenic poisonings, including a case of poisoned humbugs, and some fascinating social history around Victorian attitudes to women and ideals of femininity, as well as their attitude towards domestic violence and abuse. Issues that are just as relevant today as they were in the 1840s, it's an episode that will set everything up for our final showdown in court in episode three, which will be out within a week of this one. Make sure you're subscribed or following the podcast so you don't miss its release. A night in Biggleswade. But let's get back to the story of what happened to Sarah Daisley once she arrived in Biggleswade. The newspaper reporters, who had seen Sarah in front of the Lord Mayor of London, are quite unequivocal in declaring that she was dramatically changed after spending one night in Biggleswade. It's something that may not surprise anyone who's been to Biggleswade, but I jest. You'll remember the crowds and shouting that greeted the police and Sarah's arrival into town from the opening part one of this story. All the newspapers report that it was incredibly difficult to convey Sarah to the Golden Eagle Inn where she was to stay the night. The mob was determined to see her and made it very clear that she had brought shame on herself and the neighbourhood. But the police managed to get her to the safety of her lodgings for the night. The Golden Eagle was on Stratton Street, a stone's throw from the market square. Bickleswade History Society have a photograph from 1900 of dairyman Sidney Chesham and his cart horse Old Tom on Stratton Street. I'll post a link on the blog. A portion of the Golden Eagle Inn is visible on the right-hand corner of the image, along with its pub sign. Now in its place is a modern building housing a newsagent's and a vaping emporium. It's so strange to think that this newsagent's that I have often stopped in on my way out of town to buy a drink or a chocolate bar is the site of a once bustling inn where Sarah Daisley, the pot and poisoner, spent her final night of relative freedom. And it was not an uneventful night either. Sarah would not have realised it, but what she spoke of that night with the women who sat with her would seal her fate to a certain degree. The Golden Eagle Inn was a middling sort of place looking at the census records. It wasn't one of the more famous and well-appointed coaching inns that Biggles Wade was renowned for, but it wasn't a dive either. Later in the 19th century and early 20th, many respectable single men lodged there. Market gardeners, grooms, others who worked in the town's fancier establishments all lived at the Golden Eagle until it was closed in around 1920. 
That image from 1900 makes it look cosier, more welcoming somehow than the larger hotels and inns in town. Back in 1843, it was the perfect place for the police to house witnesses who were to give evidence at inquests or trials. Sarah was not yet charged with murder. She was in police custody but not yet committed to jail. We also know from census records that Superintendent Blunden lived only a few doors away on the high street, but it would not have been seemly for a man to sit with Sarah to keep an eye on her throughout the night. Instead, two local women were chosen to be her companions for the night. It seems Sarah was chatty with them. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like for the women asked to sit with Sarah now that she was notorious. It's hard to pin down who these women were exactly, but they're named as Fanny Simmons and Mary Ann Nibbs. I have found records in Potton, Sarah's hometown, for a Fanny Simmons, who would have been just 17 or 18 at the time. There is also a Nibbs family in Potton, with various Marys and Anns of different ages. As it appears that at least one of the women knew Sarah before her notoriety, these finds on the census records could be the women who stayed with her. Women from the town she grew up in. The following is gleaned from witness statements from Sarah's trial in July 1843. Sarah and Mary Ann Nibbs shared a bed in the Golden Eagle Inn. Fanny possibly slept on a truckle bed on the floor or sat in a chair for the night. The room would have been small, stuffy even, as the women lay awake talking, like women over the centuries have done when sharing a room, for whatever reason, especially if they know one another. Did Sarah tell them about her escape to London and how she was apprehended? I'm sure she must have done. But as this was not relevant to the court case, we only hear about a snippet of their late-night conversation. Fanny and Marianne must have asked Sarah about the accusations against her, or maybe she volunteered this information, but the conversation they had was reported like this. So, if it's all gossip, how do you say your husband passed away then, Sarah? He had a shivering fit and died, Marianne. And you sought help for him when he was poorly? I went with Mary Carver to Potton to see Dr Sandal to get some pills for William, but Sandal would not sell me any. That Mary Carver is lying. She says I, I threw away the pills into a ditch, but I didn't, as Sandal would not sell me any, so I had none to throw away. Yeah, but I heard tell that you said you wanted seven husbands in seven years. Now that's not going to look good, is it? That's a lie too, Fanny. I said I should have seven husbands in ten years. <gasps> Fanny? Yes, Sarah? Do they hang much these days, the judges? I wouldn't know, Sarah. Well, it's not as if anyone saw me buy any poison or give any to William. The conversation is made much of in court, and I want you to remember it for a couple of reasons. There is one thing that Sarah says in the exchange which is not picked up on in court, and that's about the pills she says that she did not manage to buy for her husband. Keep that in the back of your mind when you hear the evidence of Dr Sandal later at the inquest and the trial, which we'll cover in episode three. What the hearings do latch on to is that Sarah asks about hangings and that she says no one saw her by poison or administer it. Let's deal with the asking about hanging. 
This seems like a very sensible question to ask whether you're guilty or innocent, especially if you've been surrounded by an angry mob baying for your blood and convinced of your guilt. So I don't think it's as incriminating to ask about rates of hanging, though Fanny seems to be a poor choice of person to ask. Yet this is given much weight in court as if an innocent person would never think to ask about executions. The admission that no one saw her buy or administer poison is the line picked up on by the newspapers as most incriminating for obvious reasons. They take it as if she said this because she's confident that she got away with it. But I wonder whether she said it exactly as the two women remember. Maybe she did mean, I got away with it, they'll never be able to prove it. Or maybe she simply meant, no one can possibly say they saw me do these things because I didn't do them. All nuance is lost in the reporting of these lines which are taken down shorthand and regurgitated by the newspapers with little explanation, and the women don't appear to have ever been cross-examined. For seven husbands in seven or ten years becomes almost a slogan for the case, the pot and poisoner who wanted seven husbands in as many years. I wonder again though if the nuance of this statement, which Sarah does not deny, is missed in the reporting. After losing two husbands during the first three years of the 1840s, even if their deaths were completely natural, could prompt someone with a dark and macabre sense of humour to remark, at this rate, I'll have seven husbands in ten years. And Sarah did seem to have a macabre turn of phrase and a flair for the dramatic. A little bit about arsenic. Now, before we look at any of the evidence in any of the inquests or the trial, we need to know a little bit about arsenic. And why was it so easy to get hold of? And why was it poisoning so many people in the 19th century? Arsenic is element 33 on the periodic table. It occurs naturally with many minerals and metals. It had been known about as a poison for centuries and by the 19th century had earned itself the nickname inheritance powder because it had a reputation of being used by the wealthy to kill off inheritance rivals. There had certainly been high profile poisonings throughout the first three decades of the 19th century in England and France. So why was it possible for this toxic substance to be on sale in a baker's in Bedfordshire? Well, because it was on sale just about anywhere and used for all kinds of different things. In a local shop, it was likely to be purchased as a rat poison, insecticide or a weed killer. But it was also found in poisonous levels in medicines, face creams, green cloth dyes and wallpapers. The most common everyday form of it was arsenic trioxide, which was used as a rat poison. In 1843, there was no control over its sale. Practically anyone could buy it. It was a white crystalline powder, very similar to sugar or salt, though could appear as fine as flour or plaster of Paris. And in 1858, this similarity to sugar and plaster of Paris led to it being mixed into a batch of sweets by mistake, which were then sold in Bradford. At least 15 people who ate the peppermint lozenges sold by Humbug Billy died. 
It was common back then to cut ingredients like sugar with substances called DAF, in this case, plaster of Paris, which would make the sugar go further. This wasn't illegal, but on this fateful day in 1858, Humbug Billy's sweets had been mixed with sugar and arsenic rather than sugar and plaster of Paris by mistake, and to deadly effect. Humbug Billy's case was some 15 years after ours, and the laws were even laxer in 1843. But the authorities were aware of the problem. You see, most deaths to arsenic had always been like Humbug Billy's case. They were accidents, or in many cases, deliberate, but suicides. And poisonings, although still rare as a cause of death, were worrying Parliament enough for a select committee to investigate deaths by poisoning in 1839. They studied an audit of coroner's verdicts for death by poisoning in 1837-8 in England and Wales, which recorded 555 deaths by poison. Obviously, this only included deaths investigated by a coroner, so the true figure would be much higher. Of that 555, 194 were accidental poisonings, 242 were suicides, and only nine were recorded as murder. However, of the 555 deaths, a third, 186, were caused by arsenic. And although Parliament were alarmed by these figures, the law was not changed until some 12 years later when the Act to regulate the sale of arsenic came into effect in 1851, eight years after the Potton Poisoner case. It also appears that although most poisonings were accidental or suicide, the new Act's motivation was to tackle arsenic use as a murder weapon. No doubt the case of William Daisley, alongside a handful of other arsenic murders in the 1840s, spurred on this rather blinkered view of how to deal with the problem, which is why poor humbug Billy's lozenges could still easily end up with arsenic in them some years after the new regulations came into force. I must thank the work of Dartmouth Undergraduate Journal of Science for the information about the parliamentary audit of poisoning deaths, and Humbug Billy's case is covered in a short podcast episode by Chemistry World. Links as ever will be on the blog. The Bradford sweet poisoning did lead to some new legislation in the 1860s, the wheels of law roll slowly, which made adulterating food with things like plaster of Paris unlawful. I think it was also at around this point that arsenic was supposed to be dyed so that it could not be easily mistaken for sugar or salt. Yet in the 1920s, when the famous dandelion poisoning happened in Hay-on-Wye, Herbert Rouse Armstrong was able to easily get hold of white arsenic powder to poison his dandelions and also, as found in the sensational court case, his wife. There's a great new podcast all about the case and how it intertwines with the novels of Agatha Christie over on Audible. As always, I'll pop a link in the transcript and notes on the blog. Armstrong acquired the arsenic from a local farmer, it would seem. So, all the way back in 1842, when it's claimed that Sarah bought some arsenic from a shop in Potton to kill some rats, that was as easy for her to do as it was to buy a bag of flour or a carton of salt. 
Records were often kept by shopkeepers of who bought what, especially poisons and medicines, but it wasn't guaranteed, and in Sarah's case there seems to be no written evidence, but we'll come back to that later in the next episode, because it does seem possible that written evidence or not, Sarah did buy arsenic in the summer of 1842. So... In the early 19th century, with all these poisonings happening and the government holding an investigation into it, it's not surprising that science was also on the case and trying to find a reliable method for detecting arsenic poisonings. And in 1836, just seven years before this, these inquests and trial for the murder of William Daisley, a reliable test was finally devised. In fact, the Marsh test, as it is known, was so reliable, a version of it was still used to detect arsenic well into the 1970s. It was a murder trial in Kent which prompted James Marsh, out of frustration, to invent the test, as there was clearly a need for it. And its first use in a murder trial was in France in 1840, just three years before Sarah's trial. This was cutting-edge science of its day, and the Wrestlingworth poisonings were one of the very first times the test was used in the UK to prove arsenic poisoning at an inquest and murder trial. Now, I'm no chemist, and I really am not going to do justice to how this test works. I'll share an image of the apparatus from the 19th century, which looks like a complicated rig of jars and pipes. There's a U-shaped test tube and a bowl uh, which appears to be either heated or cooled, and precipitates are being gathered. A sample of tissue or body fluid from a body suspected of being poisoned was placed in a glass vessel with some zinc and acid. This would create arsine gas, if arsenic was present. Igniting the gas mixture would oxidise the arsine with arsenic and water vapour. This would cause a silvery black deposit to form if the gas was forced into a cold ceramic bowl held into the jet of a flame. By using test quantities of known amounts of arsenic, the level of staining could be measured and compared with results. It was extremely sensitive to minute amounts of arsenic. And we might as well make it really clear here and now. William Daisley Sarah's second husband, did die as a result of arsenic poisoning. The medical men tell his inquest in March 1843. They knew from the moment they opened the coffin because his body was so well preserved, it had to be arsenic. It's what arsenic does. It kills even the insects and bacteria that cause decomposition. Even though they suspected arsenic, they did the Marsh test five times independently and each time it showed enough arsenic to kill a man easily. The question never really was how William died, but how the poison came to be ingested by him. Was it an accident? Was it deliberate by his own hand? Or deliberate by another's? And I'm going to tell you now that the jury at William's inquest decided after hearing the evidence that it was his wife's deliberate hand that gave him the poison. 
Don't worry, you'll get to hear this evidence in part three of the story. It's pretty much the same evidence given at trial, but with some crucial inconsistencies and contradictions. And that's why I want to devote part three of The Pot and Poisoner to William's inquest and murder trial. Now, telling you all of that about William's inquest may seem counterintuitive, but bear with me. I'm going to hop over the first inquest and head straight towards the second and third. I'm going to deal with William's inquest and his murder trial together in the final episode, as I said. And it will make sense, I promise. Trust me. We're going to head straight to the inquests of Simeon, Sarah's first husband, and her baby Jonah, because they deal with what happened in 1840, two years before William's death. And knowing about what happened then helps to understand what happened later. The second and third inquests begin. Both inquests were commenced in early April together, only for both to be adjourned, so that the bodies of Simeon and baby Jonah could be exhumed. Newspaper men were present for the exhumation, and many ran this poignant description of the occasion. A more extraordinary scene was never witnessed. The early hour of the morning, the awful stillness that the country for miles around covered with snow, the singular group collected under the walls of the church, mysteriously discussing the various points of suspicion that had been developed, and the little knot of villagers that stood near the graves, partly quaking with cold and partly shivering with horror at the dreadful deeds that had been committed, formed indeed a picture not easily to be forgotten. Simeon and little baby Jonah's coffins are conveyed to a barn where herbs are placed around them as the jury of the second inquest gathers to inspect the remains. And unlike William Daisley, their remains have decomposed. No unusual preservation appears at first glance. But what can be extracted is taken away to Bedford Hospital by two medical men for testing. In some ways, the second inquest was more of a spectacle than the first, even described by some as a circus, with one group of witnesses being willingly torn away from their own wedding celebrations to appear. It almost seems like those who didn't get to speak at the first inquest make sure they had their say in these latest ones. Simeon's inquest was shorter, largely because as soon as the medical men from Bedford were called, they explained that they could find no trace of arsenic in Simeon's remains. They in fact say they could find no traces of poison. Yet, before they are called, we do hear some interesting testimony about how Simeon died, some of which is really quite gruesome. We learn that the poor young woman whose job it was to lay out the dead in the parish went into Sarah and Simeon's house to perform her solemn task, only to be so shocked by Simeon's appearance that she had to run from the room outside into the fresh air where she grabbed hold of a hedge to steady herself from fainting. And what was it about poor Simeon's appearance that so terrified her? It was that his tongue was so swollen, discoloured and distended that his jaw had dislocated. 
The newspapers report that the jaw of his skull was gaping in a most unnatural manner when his body was inspected in the coffin. We also learn that his illness was a strange one. His throat and tongue swelled up so that he could not swallow, eat nor drink. He also had a fever. He frothed at the mouth and his breath stank offensively. None of these symptoms tie in with arsenic poisoning. Apart from one witness who claims Simeon did have the symptoms of pain in his bowels, as you would get with arsenic poisoning, everyone else says he did not vomit and he did not have a painful abdomen. That lone witness who vouches for these arsenic poisoning-like symptoms is in fact Elizabeth Daisley, the mother of William, whose death had already been attributed to Sarah poisoning him. Now, I can understand why Elizabeth would want Simeon's illness to be poisoning, like her son's. It would mean her son was not alone in being a victim. It would heap more punishment on Sarah. There are all kinds of reasons why she would want Sarah to be guilty. But Elizabeth really is the only witness to claim anything like this. Others state that Simeon did not have pain in his bowels and nor did he vomit. Elizabeth does give further evidence, though, in terms of Simeon and Sarah's relationship, and it is like this. Sarah and the deceased were my neighbours, and they did quarrel frequently. One day, Simeon wanted a shilling off his wife, and she would not give it to him, for he would only spend it on drink. But he was a big man, a powerful man, and he knocked her to the ground, and he took it from her pocket by force. She came to me after this happened, and she said to me, Damn him, I'll poison him, but what, I'll get rid of him. The violence in this evidence appears to be true. Others at different times report this incident as evidence of their unhappy marriage. But what is a little harder to elaborate is this explicit declaration from Sarah that she said she would poison her husband. Because if Elizabeth Daisley did believe Sarah had poisoned Simeon, why did she take her in when Simeon died? And why did she go along with the marriage of her eldest son to Sarah? Some reports leave out this declaration about poisoning, and then the evidence reads in a far more relatable way that Elizabeth, a friend and neighbour to Sarah, witnesses her being beaten by her husband and wanted to help. She gives Sarah a place of safety to stay. She is happy for her to marry her son. This makes far more sense than Elizabeth having any serious belief that Sarah was capable of murder back in 1840 when this happened. Simeon's little sister Anne, who was 14 when giving evidence and so was under 11 when Sarah was married to Simeon, also testifies to the turbulent and unhappy marriage. Anne says she heard Sarah once yell at Simeon Blast you! I wish you had never come near me! She also testifies that whilst ill, Simeon had said he wished to get better and to live happily with Sarah. But also, he told her, My sins lay before me, but I never should have done what I have done if it had not been for you. It seems Simeon admitted having been a violent husband but sadly still blamed Sarah for his violence. 
Domestic Violence and Abuse in Victorian Britain. I'm going to spend a very short time looking at domestic abuse and violence in Victorian Britain. I won't dwell on this for long, but I do think it's important to understand a few things. Firstly, the Victorians' tolerance for violence was greater than our own. Corporal punishment for children, especially at school, was considered by many a good and necessary thing. Saying that, throughout the century there was a growing concern about the effects of violence on women and children. Violence in the home had, until the 19th century, generally been seen as a private matter. Local villages or neighbourhoods would intervene if they felt violence in the home was going too far. Rough music could be performed, where neighbours would bang pots and pans outside a perpetrator's home in protest. However, this could also go the other way, and wives who were considered scolds or nags would also be punished by the community. But during Queen Victoria's reign, concerns about what was then termed wife-beaters grew. The prevailing view became that a husband should control his wife through moral rather than physical means. So wives should still be controlled by their husbands, but the methods of that control should not be excessive. In fact, ten years after Sarah's trial, the 1853 Criminal Procedures Act also referred to as the Act for the Better Prevention and Punishment of Aggravated Assaults Upon Women and Children, was introduced. A landmark piece of legislation where the state was legislating against crimes committed in the domestic sphere. And although women could be the ones being violent, overwhelmingly this was legislation to prevent women and children against violent husbands and fathers. Remember, in the previous episode, I mentioned how poisonings were treated as a crime against the community and God as much as they were against the individuals poisoned. The attitude was shifting, and many in Victorian Britain felt that the state needed to intervene within the home for the good of the individuals as well as for the greater good of society. But although this was a landmark piece of law, In reality, it did little to actually help women and children trapped in abusive and violent households. Prosecuting a spouse or parent was incredibly difficult and the punishment of six months in prison was likely to affect the family terribly through loss of income. A working or even middle-class mother with children to feed could not afford to prosecute a violent husband. And there was a lot of social stigma attached to being the victim of domestic abuse and violence. There was no socially acceptable escape from such a marriage either. Divorce was practically unthinkable, even in the highest echelons of society. It wasn't until 1857 that women were able to divorce their husbands when the Matrimonial Clauses Act allowed women to divorce on grounds of cruelty, Until that point, women could only seek a divorce if they discovered that they were in a bigamous marriage. But even with this change, most women could not afford to seek divorce for financial and social reasons. It took decades more campaigning by women like Frances Power Cobb for things to improve. And it wasn't until the 1960s that the divorce laws in the UK changed to an extent that they became affordable for the average person. 
So for Sarah in the 1830s and early 40s, there was no affordable nor socially acceptable way for her to escape a violent and unhappy marriage. She would be expected to stay put or be shunned. It was really only in the major cities where a woman could possibly leave a husband and reinvent herself as a way of escaping, where people would not know her. In the villages and towns around Biggleswade, there was no escape. To leave your husband was to mark yourself out as what the Victorians would call an unnatural and deviant woman. Sarah is portrayed by the press from the start as an unnatural woman. Not so much because she poisoned anyone, but because of her attitude towards her husband's. Much is made of the fact that after the violent attack from Simeon, she publicly said she would not suffer a man to be violent to her again, that she stood up to her husband and argued back at him in public. The fact that she spent time in other men's homes, even if this was for work, was seen as scandalous. And when it came out at the inquest and trial that she had defied one husband to go to a local fair when he had asked her not to, showed to the Victorians that she was a woman who could not be controlled through violence nor through moral persuasion. There was this moral preoccupation with the true nature of women in Victorian Britain. Women were seen as naturally weaker and more emotionally fragile than men, suited ideally to domesticity. Women could be seen as morally superior to their husbands, acting as a support and guide to them through piety and gentleness. There were guides, books and pamphlets, articles, all written to help women become this ideal of an angel at the hearth. However, there was a real Victorian fear that a woman's nature was a brittle one. They could easily fragment into unnaturalness and become women who were angry, insolent, slovenly, highly emotional and ungovernable by their husbands and fathers. These unnatural women could tempt and seduce men, abandon their domestic duties and children and generally corrupt society. The virgin and the whore were concepts of womanhood that the Victorians oscillated between almost uncontrollably. In fact, in the Westmoreland Gazette on the 22nd of April 1843, as well as reporting on the inquest into Simeon and Jonah Mead's deaths, they run an unrelated article about what a wife should and should not be. It reads like this. A wife should be like a snail always keep within her house, but she should not be like a snail and carry all she has upon her back. She should be like an echo, always speak when spoken to, but she should not be like an echo, have always the last word. She should be like a town clock, always keep time and regularity, but she should not be like a town clock, speak so loud that all the town may hear her. So with pearls of wisdom like that being shared in the newspapers as editorial fact, not even a letter sent in from someone with extreme views, it's historically understandable that the newspapers portrayed Sarah as the unnatural woman, the bad wife. Even before Sarah is found guilty of any serious crime, she is guilty of being a deplorable wife, mother and woman. Many of the early headlines read, The despicable poisonings by a wife. 
Sarah is the devil at the hearth, all decent people must be terrified of. When she is convicted of murder at a criminal trial, unlike today, mitigating circumstances were not considered. The Victorians had no concept for the psychological stress and trauma that domestic abuse and violence cause. Psychology as we know it had not been invented. To them, the easiest explanation for Sarah's behaviour was that she was one of these unnatural women. Just look at her behaviour even before she murdered anyone. She was to be either hated or pitied, depending on whether you were a reactionary or a reformer. Reformers believed that such unnatural behaviour came about because of the evils of alcohol, poverty and lack of religious vigour. The devil was found in these circumstances, causing sin. Whilst a reactionary would say Sarah was just bad to the bone, lots of women were. That's why they need to be controlled so closely by the menfolk. So, although some attitudes towards domestic violence were changing in Victorian times, and Sarah's own defence lawyer says that one thing guaranteed to upset a wife is rough treatment from her husband, no one puts forward a defence that Sarah poisoned her husband's out of desperation and fear. That is very much a late 20th century and early 20th century perspective. As we'll learn in the next episode, Sarah does say she had a way of dealing with violence in her marriage to William, but we never hear what her thoughts were or how she felt after facing that attack by Simeon. Back to the second inquest. None of the evidence given by neighbours at the inquest ultimately mattered because the medical men from Bedford stated that there was no trace of poison in the remains of Simeon Mead. The coroner, on hearing this, cut short the inquest and the jury passed a verdict that Simeon Mead died on the 10th of June 1840 after an illness of six days, but that there was no evidence to show whether his death was caused by natural causes or otherwise. Except that wasn't the end of it not for the family and neighbours. You see, someone had said that they believed arsenic had not been used to poison Simeon, but a substance called corrosive sublimate was used instead. This was another highly dangerous compound, more commonly known today as mercury chloride. And you've guessed it, the Victorians used it in all kinds of things, as a disinfectant, a preservative in early photography and in medicine. It was used to treat syphilis and often did a lot more harm than good. It was used in some famous poisonings, accidental and deliberate, right up until the early 20th century. I have no idea if the doctors tested or could test for it, though their evidence says there was no sign of poison not no sign of arsenic, so maybe they did test for more than one poison. But the rumour was enough, and although Simeon did not have the classic symptoms of corrosive sublimate poisoning either, many believed that that was what had killed him, given to him by his wife, and that she got away with it because the medics looked for arsenic. And to this day, even though the inquest gave the equivalent of an open verdict and a grand jury dismissed the case so it was never taken to trial, Sarah is remembered as poisoning both of her husbands. Baby Jonah. 
As soon as the jury give their conclusion, proceedings just roll around to the inquest of baby Jonah. And it's at this point that it appears that every villager in Wrestlingworth is called and the wedding party turn up to give their evidence, which the papers note was of no material value at all. It's as if every local neighbour wants to have their say. And maybe this was a form of community therapy, a way to process what had happened in their midst. There must have been a lot of bewilderment and guilt felt by Sarah's neighbours. She had been declared a murderer by the first inquest and suspected of poisoning her own baby, a child many in the village knew and had looked after from time to time. Why had they not seen the signs? Could they have prevented the little one's death? These must have been questions going through many of their minds. The evidence given can be categorised as from either medical professionals, again, or neighbours and relatives. The evidence of family and neighbours falls into two differing camps. In camp one, Sarah was, and I quote, a brute of a mother who did not keep her child clean like other mothers do. The child was healthy until his final illness, and Sarah was heard to say that she wished the baby dead on many occasions. In Camp 2, we hear no complaints about Sarah's parental skills, and we learn that the baby was a sickly child from birth, with a terrible persistent cough for many weeks before his death. Sarah is described as being distraught when he dies. It may not surprise you to learn that Camp 1 is made up of the relatives of Simeon and Jonah Mead and Elizabeth Daisley, mother of murdered William. Unfortunately for Elizabeth, her husband, also a William, undermines her witness testimony by saying that the baby was a sickly child, after all. But he does quickly jump back into Camp 1 by saying that on the Saturday before little Jonah died, Sarah visited with the baby and William fed him some sop made up of milk, sugar and water. But Sarah complained, saying of Jonah, Damn him, he's always stuffing his gob. Camp 2 is made up of women who did not appear at William or Simeon's inquest, nor later at the trial. They are women who stayed with Sarah during her confinement and and or helped and looked after Jonah in the village. The evidence from them is that no one saw the baby vomit when he was ill, but they all report on his cough and general malaise being his illness. Witnesses in both camps do testify that Sarah purchased some medicinal powder. One witness says from a Mr Pratt of Potton. Now I can't find a Pratt in Potton, but I did find Mr Parrot, who's a butcher. But that seems an odd choice to buy powders from, but you never know, maybe he did a sideline in them. Within an hour and a half of the first powder being given to baby Jonah, he's dead. But all the contradictory witness testimony is overshadowed by the medical men of Bedford's evidence. Hadley and Hurst are back, and they say there was some tissue preserved in little Jonah's coffin of his stomach and bowel area. This tipped them off to there being arsenic present, though the preservation is not as extensive as that of William's body. They perform their experiments with the Marsh test apparatus and declare that some arsenic was found. It appears less than was found in the samples of William Daisley. They appear to need to do more extensive testing to get a result. But nonetheless, 
both confirm that arsenic was found in little Jonah's body, enough to cause death of an infant. It seems the jury have no choice but to say that Jonah Mead died of arsenic poisoning, but do they have proof that Sarah deliberately poisoned him? The jury decided that they had enough evidence and again say that Sarah Daisley deliberately used poison to kill her own kin. But no one saw her administer poison. No one says they sold it to her and there is ample evidence that the baby was very poorly already. Maybe if she had not been found guilty of poisoning William at the first inquest, they'd have given her the benefit of the doubt that the arsenic had somehow found its way into the baby's medicinal powder by accident. Maybe there was enough cases of accidental poisonings that this should have been explored. But with it being three years since the poisoning took place, maybe it was just too difficult to track down what may or may not have caused it. But the evidence seems extremely thin in pointing to a deliberate act. They give no motive other than the group who claim she was a bad mother. But even Elizabeth Daisley, who in one breath calls her a brute of a mother, admits Sarah was not a cruel mother. It was just that she did not keep the baby as clean as Elizabeth felt she should. Elizabeth and that group of witnesses have every reason to push the bad mother angle, to only see the worst in Sarah. They believed she killed their son or relative. The other group have no reason to contradict these grieving neighbours, and yet they do say that Sarah wasn't the brute she is made out to be. Why would they lie? And that's why I don't think they are. I think Camp 2 are far more likely to be telling the truth because they have no reason to say otherwise. They have no agenda. And so I'm more inclined to believe them. The doctors seem far less certain about their result when it comes to Jonah's death than they were William's. But they cannot rule out any other causes of death because the lungs and other parts of the body were not preserved. But it's there. It's a fact. There was arsenic. It all feels very unsatisfactory. We don't hear from Sarah at these inquests. Although she was there, she either was not interviewed or the papers chose not to report what she said. What we do know is that prison life had been hard on her. Bedford Jail. Straight after the first inquest, Sarah is whisked away to Bedford Jail and I have seen her admittance entry, which states that she was five foot five, had auburn hair, hazel eyes and a brown complexion freckles, I assume. The record states that she could read a little. Her conduct throughout her time in jail is described as very good. And throughout her whole time there, she maintains her innocence, refusing to confess to any wrongdoing at all. It's not long into her imprisonment that she develops an illness of the throat, something the newspapers find ironic as both her husbands complained of pain in their throats before they died. She's allowed at times to stay in her bed in the jail because she is so poorly. And on her appearance at the inquests of Simeon and Jonah, the papers report how much she suffers with this disease of the throat and how wretched she now appears. The Grand Jury there is one other official hearing before Sarah is to face the murder trial, and that is a grand jury which decide which crimes she will be tried for. 
It may seem a foregone conclusion that she will face a murder trial for the deaths of both William and her baby because both inquests found her guilty of administering poison. Except that isn't how it goes in front of the grand jury. When they examine the evidence, they decide that it is the case of William's murder alone that should be tried for. It appears that the grand jury are not convinced of the evidence when it comes to the death of baby Jonah, just as I am not convinced of it. I think they make the right decision. We'll never know how baby Jonah got arsenic into his little body, and it could so easily have accidentally found its way there, mixed up in another white powder or granules like sugar, salt or flour, or in the medicinal powder he was given. The evidence around all of this is just too weak to really know for sure what happened. But what the grand jury did find was that there was enough evidence from the inquest and subsequent investigations to prosecute Sarah Daisley for poisoning her husband, William Daisley. And that is what we will look at next time on Weird in the Wade. We'll look at the year 1842 in the lives of all of those involved. We'll compare the accounts given at the inquest and trial, interrogate the differing takes and contradictory statements given. We'll attempt to untangle the twisty timeline of events. There'll be salacious local gossip, teenage pregnancies, pills, powders, and a dead pig along the way. And at the end of it, there is a guilty verdict. You know that. But if you had been part of that jury, at the inquest or the trial into William Daisley's death, could you have made up your mind? Next time on Weird in the Wade. Thank you for listening to part two of The Pot and Poisoner. Part three will be out in the next week and by Monday the 4th of September at the very latest. Remember, if you follow and subscribe the podcast, you won't miss a single episode. I'd like to say a big thank you to John Hawkes for his continued support of the show. It's really appreciated. Thank you, John. If you're enjoying my podcast, please do follow, subscribe, rate and review it. It really helps other people find the show. The transcript to today's podcast and notes and links from this episode can all be found at weirdinthewade.blog. You can find the pod on social media as Weird in the Wade just about everywhere, but there is a link in the show description. Weird in the Wade is researched, written and presented by me, Nat Doig. Additional crowd voices by Savagir and McCohen. Theme music and our beautiful Pot and Poisoner music is by Tess Savagir. And all other music and additional sound effects are from Epidemic Sound.